Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison and hey nonny nonny, who's that sitting next to me? Oh, but... I was going to in- introduce the Biscuits, which oh, is our, introduce the biscuits. Our, our new third host, the Biscuits of the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Joshua, would you like a biscuit? I will. Shall I eat it noisily into my microphone? Indeed. I won't eat mine simultaneously because then all you'll get is the sound mm. of chewing. So yes, welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. Hey, prithy conspiracy podcast guide-ho. I don't know. I'm trying to do Elizabethan flower, mm. flower language there. It does make it sound as if I'm trying to do very bad fake Italian. Blow winds blow and crack your cheeks. <laughs> Indeed. That's what I say. Uh, I mean, I'd like to say Shakespeare is classier than fart jokes, but that's not actually true at all, is it? Shakespeare is all about fart jokes. Yeah, there are a lot of fart jokes Mm. in Shakespeare. Sorry, I'm eating and speaking at the same time. That's incredibly good idea. And unprofessional. Mm, Rather nice vegan cookies we have here. Mm, Made of 100% vegan. Mm. Um, So, yes, we're talking about Shakespeare um, again, as it Mm. turns out, although it has been quite some time. Actually, a lot longer than I remember. Mm. Yeah, it seems like it was just yesterday. Just like the Elizabethan era. Mm, Exactly. Oh, those grand old days where men slept on wigs to pretend to be women Mm. on the stage, and presumably off the stage as well. Mm. And women slept on men's names and pretended to be men when they published stuff? Yep. Mm. And, of course, that episode of Blackadder. Well, I'm going to finish this mouthful. Unless you have anything else to get into. Oh no, I've got to do the customary pouring of a glass of whiskey. Whiskey in a biscuit. <laughs> you make sounds it like sound. a euphemism, yeah. <laughs> you make you make it sound as if that's the most debauched thing you've ever seen. And let's face it, it, it is. is. Yeah. Well, I've led a sheltered life. Well, I'm going to keep chewing. You're going to keep supping. Let's play a chime and move on to the main content. I think we shall, yeah. Hey, nonny, nonny, blow winds and crack thy cheeks, poor Tom's a cold. That was a reading from Wilfred Shakespeare's Two and a Half Spleens. Shakespeare, considered to be a dramatist of his era, is well known to us all, but just how much do we really know of the person Bryn Franklin called a writer of many misspelled words? For example, did Shakespeare wear a beard? And if he did, was it his? Or just when he rented? The mystery of Wilfred Shakespeare has vexed hardly any academics, mostly because he doesn't exist. Or does he? But one Elizabethan playwright who has fascinated actors, Supreme Court judges and writers is one William Shakespeare, the man many of you know as the author of at least six different variations of his own name. Yes, today on the podcast we travel back to a topic we covered 150 episodes ago, back in the halcyon days of 2017. That is the Shakespeare authorship controversy. I meet a new contender for the throne of Shakespeare, one Emilia Bassano. We'll ask, what's the evidence? And also, how likely is it that Shakespeare really was a woman? We'll also ask if William Shakespeare was really Wilfred Shakespeare. No, we won't. Oh. What we will ask, and will contemplate, is why is it when it comes to questioning Shakespeare's identity, the debate is largely constrained to people who aren't academic scholars of the Elizabethan age. Yes, all this and more, after the chime. 
So I guess it's been long enough that we, that we might actually need a bit of a refresher on the Shakespeare controversy for anyone who might not be familiar with it. What is the controversy around Shakespeare? So for a while now, and I say for a while, this has really only been since the 19th century, certain people have claimed that William Shakespeare, Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon, isn't actually Shakespeare the author of the Shakespearean canon. As I say, this came about in the 19th century. One of the descendants of Sir Francis Bacon decided that her ancestor wasn't already famous enough and suggested that there were clues in the corpus of Shakespearean works that actually Francis Bacon was the author of the Shakespearean plays. And this is basically the first authorship controversy theory. And then this extended to claims that Kit Marlowe wrote the plays, which is slightly problematic because Kit Marlowe basically dies at a young age and whoever Shakespeare was continued publishing for quite some time afterwards. So the conspiracy theories about Kit Marlowe as the author either claim he wrote all the plays before he died and then some kind of cartel just basically released a play every year or so, or Kit Marlowe faked his death, a claim which is actually vaguely plausible because Kit Marlowe was also a spy for the British Crown at that particular time mm. and would often go to France described as a priest, but disguised as a priest. Which is why he was described as a priest. To fry, to spy on the French government. Mm. I'm really spoonering my words. Yes. I need the whiskey to loosen the tongue. Mm. And then more recently, the Shakespeare authorship controversy has focused on the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, who people claim has the right kind of smarmy, academic, well-travelled background to make him the perfect fit for Shakespeare. Although once again, we have a problem and that de Vere dies before such plays as The Tempest is written. So once again, there's a question of how was Shakespeare writing plays after Shakespeare's death if Shakespeare was actually not William Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon. Mm. And 150 episodes more or less ago, we covered these contenders and more. But there's a new contender for the throne of Shakespeare. Joshua, introduce the world to Amelia. Indeed. Um, and I suppose it should be clear, everybody agrees William, there was a man called William mm. Shakespeare at the time. Um, but it's whether or not that man is actually the author of the works that are ascribed to William Shakespeare. Um, and yeah, I, I, I gather for a while people had been remarking, gosh, is, isn't, it, isn't it strange to think that this man who lived in Stratford-on-Avon and didn't really travel around much and was the son of a glover, and... Uh, um, he was know, the son of Julian Glover? He was the son of Donald Glover. Donald Glover and Julian Glover had a child in the past. Yes, this is astounding mm. information. So people and people had said, you know, isn't it weird to think that a guy who's from a seemingly limited background could write all these things about far, far away lands and court intrigue and blah 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 blah. Um, and then, then more recently, um, it's been going along at, at least since sometime early in this century. People have, have suggested. Now, we, we've been looking at these other candidates for who might have really written Shakespeare's plays. We've only been looking at men because of our, our, our bias towards male authorship and so on and so on and so forth. But also Could for the notion that it was thought that in the Elizabethan 
era, women were forbidden from publishing. Well, indeed, they so were. So there was a kind of, well, it had to be a man because the only people who could write plays were men, although we'll get to that in mm. just a minute. And yet, if we're talking, if, if we're going to run with the idea that uh, the real author of Shakespeare's plays published under, you know, not under their own name, but under the name of William Shakespeare, possibly it could have been a woman. And um, some people, some people, having looked through Shakespeare's works, have decided, yeah, may maybe Shakespeare was a woman for the reason, basically, that they, that um, so many of Shakespeare's plays feature women in quite sort of strong, feisty roles. Um, there, there are the theme in numerous of his plays of women going in disguise to sort of to pass as a man or something like that. Um, there are women who are sort of headstrong and reject the rules of their society, disobey their fathers, be willful, and so on. Uh, the, the fact that um, Shakespeare, obviously, a lot of Shakespeare's plays were based on existing stories, traditional tales, and so on. But in many cases, he sort of quote unquote feminized them. He'd bring in more female characters, or he'd make the female characters more prominent. Or he would change the gender mm. of a character. So in the traditional. Uh, story from say Patullus, it would be two men in a scene and the Shakespearean version would be a man and a woman or two women instead. And so it led people to say, um, you know, that Shakespeare's plays seem to be, or Shakespeare seemed to be so good at writing female characters and seemed to be so favourable towards them, although or not, we'll talk about that later, um, that possibly the reason for that is that Shakespeare's plays were actually written by a woman. Um, and there have been a few, there have been more than one woman suggested as possibly the true author of Shakespeare's plays, but the top contender at the moment in, in this arena seems to be one Amelia Bassano. Now, I just want to interject here. The reason why we're doing this particular yes, episode yes. is because of Radio New Zealand, which is basically, it isn't our public broadcaster, but it plays the role of our public broadcaster here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. When I was having... Breakfast must have been a fairly late breakfast. The interview played just uh, between nine and ten on Monday. Someone was being interviewed mm. on national radio. Uh, Elizabeth Richie, Elizabeth uh, Winkler. Yeah, for some reason I wanted to call her Andrea Winkler, and I have no idea I why. So Elizabeth Winkler was being interviewed by Jim Mora on this very mm. topic. So let's go through. Winkler's argument for Amelia, which is the name of my new novel coming out next week. Mm. So yes, um, Elizabeth Winkler had a, an article in The Atlantic uh, earlier this month uh, where she puts forward the theory that, that Shakespeare was actually Amelia Bassano. Um, she wasn't the first to do it. She based some of her stuff on her conversations with a guy called John Hudson, who runs a, an all-woman Shakespeare troupe, I think. Um, and he's been saying since 2007 or thereabouts that he thinks Amelia Bassano could have written Shakespeare's works. Um, so they, they, they suggest her because she, she's basically a good fit. Um, she uh, is the daughter of um, an Elizabethan court musician uh, who was born in, uh, I, she was born in England, I believe, but he was born in Italy. His yeah, so she comes from a, a Venetian family, mm. and that's going to be important very soon. Mm. 
Um, and yeah, she, she was an interesting character in her own right. She was the mistress of a baron. I forget which baron, but one, one of them. Um, there were a lot of barons. There were a lot time. of barons. A, uh, they, they kept on breeding because they kept on having mistresses. Indeed. Uh, apparently, apparently lived quite a happy life as, as uh, his mistress, but eventually she got pregnant, got married off to a different court musician. Um, she was, she's, I've, I've seen her referred to as minor gentry, so she was sort of not, not one of the big knobs, but a, a little, small knob. little knob, yeah. Um, kind and, of knob you'd twizzle. Exactly. Um, and she was a, she was a poet, uh, so she, she was a writer, she was a published writer, indeed she was the first woman to be, have a complete work of poetry published in English. Um, she was only, I think, the fourth woman to have poetry published in English ever, and the first to have a, a, a complete set of works. I believe the, the other ones sort of had published smaller pamphlets or extracts and so on. Um, so in 1611, she published Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, Hail God, King of the Jews, um, under her own name. Uh, she was uh, uh, something of a proto-feminist, apparently um, the, 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 the work, the, there is one of the poems is called Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, which is about the crucifixion of Jesus, but told from a woman's point of view. The dedications in her book are all to woman. She's very um, uh, apparently sort of put forward the supportive of the ideas of sort of womanly virtues and piety, but also sort of uh, societal egalitarianism and so on. So she's been um, credited as being uh, quite a quite a sort of early feminist as well. Now, in the official narrative, uh, there is the suggestion uh, she knew Shakespeare, Shakespeare knew her, and there is the suggestion that she was actually the dark lady who comes up in, in various of Shakespeare's sonnets. I don't know a lot of Shakespeare's sonnets, but I understand he sort of contrasts what is there. It's like a fair maiden and a dark lady or something, and the fair maiden is more sort of the romantic love, and the dark maiden is the the dark lady is the slightly slightly saucy or rumpy pumpy. The one who lives sonnets. in the north across the wall. Bringing winter to the world, things like Something that. Something like that. Yeah. A sinister figure, mm. and yet also a beguiling one. Indeed, uh, and in, in in the in the official story, uh, there are, there are there's suspicion there are suggestions that she may have actually contributed to Shakespeare a little bit. Uh, we know a lot about her from the diaries of one Simon Foreman, who was an astrologer, occultist, and herbalist of the time. She was a patient of his, and apparently in his diaries. He writes about her sort of quizzing him on occult matters, which has been taken to, by some as, as her researching information for Macbeth, which she then passed on to Shakespeare to help him write Macbeth. So there had been suggestions in the past that she, she had been the inspiration or, or possibly even a, a collaborator in some of Shakespeare's writings. But now some people have come along and said maybe she was actually the writer of Shakespeare's works herself. Yes, yeah, so the kind of evidence that Winkler puts forward is that... For one thing, Amelia is a fairly common name in the Shakespearean canon. And this is unusual mm. because it's a fairly rare name in English literature yeah. of the time. I think somewhere they said the statistic was that Amelia is tied with Catherine for the most common name of Shakespearean character or Shakespearean woman. Yes. Mm. So it's a name which is really found elsewhere, and yet Shakespeare uses it all the time. And then you get this claim that. Because Shakespeare isn't attested to as a writer in writings of the time, and I'll clarify that. So Shakespeare is named on many of his plays, and that's actually quite unusual for the time. Almost over, well, I'll say almost over, over 50% of Elizabethan plays are unattributed, 
because it wasn't common for writers to get credits for plays. It was the troupe that got the credits, the the acting crew basically, or the performance team. Uh, writers weren't particularly important. Shakespeare is unusual in that Shakespeare fairly early on in their career starts crediting their plays to them. Now, William Shakespeare was a member of his acting troupe, and suddenly there are all these Shakespearean plays with his names on it, but there's very little writing by William Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon, which basically is September 11th, sat down and rattled off the soliloquy to Macbeth, then had lunch with Queen Elizabeth, looking forward to dinner tonight with Mary Sue. There's virtually no examples mm. of that in which Shakespeare's do, own writings. Do, which are known to exist for other writers, uh, apparently. You know, yes. there, there are diaries, yeah. there are there are sort of receipts for, for professional writing done from other writers and so on, but apparently none, no such thing exists for Shakespeare. Yeah, so there's a kind of lacuna in the evidential record here. Shakespeare Shakespeare never sits down and, and claims to have written any of the plays. We simply have attribution and other people saying, well, Shakespeare wrote those particular plays, isn't he grand? So the fact there's none of this kind of attribution by Shakespeare in his own writing to writing the plays, and the fact that his the, the woman in his plays seem to be so realised, and Bassiano basically being a prominent writer of her time, you end up going, well, women weren't allowed to be playwrights in the Elizabethan era. Amelia knows William. Maybe Shakespeare lent his name, or Shakespeare took her plays, or she insisted that the plays be published under his name so her work could get out there. Mm. Although this is this is stymied ever so slightly by another point that Winkler makes, well, yes, isn't it's, it? It's interesting that in, in her article, I should say, at least sort of half the article is based on the idea that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, just, just as a general point, and then sort of goes from that to Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare and Amelia Bassano did. So there's, there's a lot of that, but when it specifically comes to Bassano, she, she does actually, it's quite odd that she specifically says that comparing uh, the works of poetry that she published under her own name with the works attributed to William Shakespeare, um, their writing styles are apparently quite different. In fact, she says uh, her writing style bears no obvious resemblance to Shakespeare's in his plays, but she claims that the, 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 what they do have in common is the sort of the feminist content. Um, Which could, of course, have been informed by her and William Shakespeare having conversations, possibly. Well, who knows? Or, or they could be entirely independent of one another. Now, I mean, I should say, uh, in in definitely in her interview, I don't know about the article, but in her interview, um, Winkler, she does specifically say, look, I don't have proof that, that Amelia Bassano wrote Shakespeare. I, I think it's a compelling theory and I think it you know deserves to be looked into, but she isn't claiming you know, it, it is 100% certain that this woman wrote Shakespeare, but she thinks there's an argument to be made. Yeah, see, I think in the interview for Radio New Zealand, she's much more circumspect about the possibility mm. that... Shakespeare was a woman. In the article, she's a lot more strident about mm. the claim 
that Shakespeare must have been a woman. And I don't know whether that's a rhetorical device from the kind of writing she does, or whether that's a reaction to the criticism she's had about that article in The Atlantic. Mm. But we'll get onto that in just a minute. Yeah, um, yes, I mean, she, she has, like, like the, uh, you, you've found out firsthand, haven't you, that passions can be, can run somewhat hot when it comes to uh, questions around Shakespeare's authorship. Indeed, I had a correspondent for several years, we'll call him Alan, for that is in fact his first name, who kept on trying to persuade me that his own particular reading of the Shakespearean sonnets showed that Edward de Vere was very likely the real Shakespeare. And the fact that I wasn't particularly interested in this hypothesis, because by and large, outside of this podcast, the Shakespeare authorship controversy means absolutely nothing Mm. to me at all, meant that the emails went from being initially polite to incredibly belligerent in the space of one sentence. Yeah, it's a shame. Yes, and so you have Ullman A, not only... um, questioning the idea that Shakespeare might not have been Shakespeare, but then suggesting Ormond, so she sort of gets it from the, Both the Shakespearean yeah. scholars and from your your sort of MRA assholes who would, would leap at the chance to um, have a go at that. Um, so I, I guess we need to evaluate what she actually says. Part of it, I mean, part of the problems are that reading through her articles, some of the stuff she says about Shakespeare and about questions of his authorship just don't quite seem to be true. No. Um, she she talks about uh, like like we we we've just said at the top here that um, people the, the idea of questioning that Shakespeare might not have actually been the author of of Shakespeare's plays has only been around since sort of the late late nineteenth century. Um, and she she several I think several times in the interview and also in her article says no 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 people were questioning it right from the word go. Um, but that doesn't really seem to be true. People, people made there. There are contemporary remarks of people suggesting that maybe Shakespeare ripped people off or put his name on other people's works. But I don't think anyone says Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. They're just it's, it's more sort of bitchiness, isn't it? Yes, there's a lot of making fun of Shakespeare. So it is true that many of the playwrights operating in the outer bound of london because they've got this wonderful geographical puritanical thing that all the playhouses were kind of on the border or the outside of the city of london because you weren't allowed to have play houses in the actual city center because of puritans and 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 the like so it is true that many of the playwrights were highly educated upper crust nobility And Shakespeare wasn't lower class. Shakespeare was very, very middle class. But in a class-based society, we have class divides. Being middle class and coming from a good family doesn't mean diddly squat. So there's a fair number of criticisms by the nobility about Shakespeare as a kind of upstart crow. Mm. And you've also got situations where people are making fun of his education, because once again, he's not going to the right schools. And of course, you've got jealous playwrights who are annoyed because Shakespeare becomes very famous very quickly, and other playwrights get annoyed because of that, so they can't start casting aspersions. And of course, it's now taken to be the case that Shakespeare probably did co-write many of his plays. Many of his earlier works stylistically seem to have at least two hands involved. 
And so there's a lot of work going into working out who these other playwrights were, and yet these plays were credited towards Shakespeare, so there was a concern that he was stealing other people's words to a certain extent. But there's no real evidence that people doubted Shakespeare's authorship at the time. Instead, what you've got are the struggles of playwrights in London, and also the class struggle being reported by people reacting to Shakespeare being the upstart crow. Mm. And so this point, actually, um, her article in The Atlantic uh, does actually have a few corrections at the bottom, and the first one is that her article originally said that... um, uh, doubts about whether Shakespeare really wrote the works attributed to him are almost as old as the writing itself, and they actually ended up amending that to say, well, there, there were people casting aspersions at the time, but the doubts didn't really show up until the late 1800s. Um, and then there's the, the there are all these claims about the, the, the masterful things Shakespeare wrote that he couldn't possibly have had the knowledge to write. And in a lot of the cases, it it kind of comes down to people people actually overselling Shakespeare. Um, they'll claim he couldn't have, you know, he must have been nobility because he writes so much about court. And people say, well, actually, when, when he talks about sort of court affairs, he, he doesn't actually always get it right. Yeah, or um, they say he must have had a military background because he describes all of these battle scenes with absolute might. And then at least Elizabethan age scholars go, yeah, uh, not only does Shakespeare get the date of battles wrong, he gets the constitutions of armies wrong, and he gets the way that warfare is actually undertaken in those time periods. So if he's got a military background, he's very much a modern major general. Mm, the very model of one. Precisely. Um, and also the Venetian The thing. Venetian thing, right. yeah. So Amelia's parents were Venetian. Now, that's, Shakespeare- that's from Venus, yeah. not from the planet Venus. We should be, be very clear there. Right, I have to, I have to revise what I'm about, about okay. to say, but it still makes sense. Glad I caught um, that. So I was going to talk about the Merchant of, of Venus, but obviously we won't talk about that mm. particular plan. But in the Merchant, the Merchant of Venice, a play set in Venice, there's one very notable factor about Venice which is missing in the play. And that is any description of canals. Mm. Which you'd think it would be hard to write a play about Venice and not mention if canals family, if you knew anything yeah. about Venice yes. at all. So if your family came from Venice or you'd done a grand tour of Europe and been to Venice, you would probably note there are canals everywhere. And yet Venice is presented in A Merchant of Venice as a standard city by the sea. Mm. And there are also other things. So people talk about Shakespeare's masterful use of language. And yet people who have studied the use of non-English and Shakespearean plays have gone, every single phrase in a Shakespearean play, with few exceptions, come from phrase books that were available in Elizabethan shops at the time. Because... English people went overseas all the time. They needed a phrase book to say my nipples are exploding in delight. So they my hovercraft is full of eels. Precisely. Let's get the reference. Very, very, very Mm. useful references. So you would buy a phrase book and almost all of Shakespearean's French and Italian comes from books of that particular type. Mm. Yeah, so the claim that 
you know, Shakespeare f for a man like William Shakespeare, did he ever leave England? He, he's not known not for being well travelled. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah we, we don't know that he ever left mm. England. It's possible he did, but there's no evidence he did. Mm. For, for a man who's seemingly not, uh, not particularly well travelled at all, to be setting his plays in exotic countries all around Europe... Um, it seems it sort of seems unbelievable. The number of plays sort of set in in around Italy, um, would surely surely you'd need to have close ties to Italy to have written about them. But maybe that doesn't seem to. Go. And indeed, I'm told most of his Italian plays come from one particular volume of Italian folk tales that he had that he adapted. So I think I think even there we know kind of know where where they came from. So a lot of the whole. Shakespeare couldn't have written Shakespeare because he wasn't noble slash educated slash well travelled enough. Um, don't don't really seem to stack up. And the whole Shakespeare must have been a woman because William Shakespeare wasn't feminist enough, knowledgeable enough about women to have written such good female characters. Also a little bit doubtful, especially if we actually look at how some of the women appear in his plays. Yes, so. A lot of women in the Shakespearean ca canon are conniving and have fairly disastrous fates because of it. And then, of course, you've got what is taken to be one of the most sexist plays of the Elizabethan era. And I say this because there were contemporary reports at the time of people being astounded by how sexist this play was. And that is The Taming of the Shrew, mm. where an independent woman who doesn't want to get married is browbeaten into marrying someone she doesn't even like, is, and that's the entire joke of the play. Is brainwashed into yeah, not liking a guy. If, if, you, haven't seen, if you haven't seen it. The Taming of the Shrew, uh, the guys, the guys, the, the way she is tamed is that, uh, what is it, Petruchio? I can't even yeah, remember. Yeah. Petruchio um, uh, doesn't let her eat or sleep, essentially, for days at a time until she's completely ragged and, and only sort of relents once, she's, once she starts giving in to him. I actually saw it uh, just earlier this year at the Pop-Up Globe. They put on a production of it, which was, which was actually very good. But, and they tried to... They tried to sort of end it with the two of them kind of as equals. It's sort of if the, the play ends basically, the three characters have got married and they sort of have a bit of a wager to see whose wife will be the most obedient. And they all, all three of them summon their wives and the other two characters' wives say, no bugger off, I'm busy. Whereas Catherine, Kate, Petruccio's wife comes and delivers this big speech rebuking her other wives and telling, saying how everybody should be, all women should be good and nice and dutiful and subservient to their husbands. Um, in the play, in the staging of it that I saw, she sort of delivers this whole speech and then sort of kneels right down and, and sort of abases herself before her husband, who then sort of looks stunned and does the exact same thing, kneels down and lies in, lies in front of her. And it's actually quite a nice moment. But I don't know that that's generally the, the way the play usually ends and certainly doesn't, um, doesn't fully mitigate uh, his treatment of her beforehand. No, that the only decent version of Taming of the Shrew was the version they did on Moonlighting. Oh, I never saw it. Season two, well worth a watch. Mm, Very, uh, Moonlighting is a wonderfully weird show and when they do the Taming of the Shrew, they just do it as the Taming of the Shrew set in Italy with the two mains now playing the two mains of the Shakespearean play. Uh, and it does have a slightly different ending. Mm. Oh, good.
So, yeah, I mean, so, so a lot of the claims, uh, some of the claims in uh, Winkler's original article seem to be flat out wrong, and others seem to be a little bit dubious, and, and people have picked up on this, so they've been... Like she's received a lot of a lot of nasty criticism and a lot of abuse, but she's also received sort of literary criticism of her um, of her articles. So uh, Noah Millman in the Week wrote um, an article about it, where he basically just sort of says it's the same it's the same as all the others. Your, your other authorship controversy ones are basically oh Shakespeare couldn't have written it because he wasn't noble, educated, well-travelled enough, and this is, this is the same territory Shakespeare couldn't have been a woman because he wouldn't have been able to write female characters well enough. He sort of says it's, 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 it's of the same species as the other arguments and has the same flaws as them, um, and points out that there's a lot of, I mean, the, 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 Bassan, the arguments kind of against Shakespeare and for Bassana are all, are all pretty circumstantial. There's a lot of a lot of um, absence of proof isn't proof of absence. Okay, there's no evidence that you know, we, we don't have documentary evidence of William Shakespeare sitting down and saying, I am writing this play right now. Unlike, uh, say, El Elton John, who mm. would, I wrote today's hit, I'm off to have lunch with Freddy Krueger. He has lunch with Freddy Krueger mm. all the time. Indeed. Um, and and sort of, you know, it says that Winkler's floor is, is kind of uh, making the data fit the theory rather than the other way around, I think. Yes, yes. So basically... She claims that people who advocate that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare selectively cherry-pick evidence to show that there's no controversy, and yet she does exactly the same thing. Also, her entire theory is consistent with the two of them knowing each other and Shakespeare being informed mm. by her. Yes, yeah, could, she could certainly have been an influence on Shakespeare. and The, the Dark Lady. She was the, she was the Dark Lady, yeah. Um, yeah, she, she does things like, uh, she, she puts a lot of stock in Shakespeare's will, apparently, uh, where in which he, th there's no mention of any th of, of the sorts of things you might expect a writer to leave people in his will. There's no mention of books at all, of him leaving any, any, any books that he had. Um, and and she's sort of, she takes this to say, you know, you look at this and it's not, not the portrait of a great writer, but it, it doesn't really prove anything either way. It's all kind of a yeah, new and I, can't, I can't remember which famous literary figure also has the same issue. I think it actually might even be good old Ben Jonson, who apparently criticised Shakespeare during his life, but then praised him as the great, greatest playwright of all time after he died for the first folio. And I think... Johnson's will also is remarkably light on bequeathing books to anyone. And given that Ben Johnson basically wrote the first English dictionary, mm. you'd kind of think he'd have a lot of books. But it seems like they weren't the kind of thing you would necessarily note in a will mm. because they actually were the kind of thing that really wasn't considered to be worth a lot. Mm. Um, and then that, that Noah Millman article linked to another one by Oliver Cam at Quillette. Now, I, I'm not familiar with Quillette. I, get, I gather they're a less than savoury website. Yes, they're run by Claire Lehman. She keeps on trying to introduce people to the intellectual dark web. They've engaged in crypto alt-rightism. Some would say they engage in crypto-fascism. They've engaged in a fair amount of transphobia. They are a trash website, that's a and that's my guarantee. 
So that that could explain why uh, the the tone of his uh, goes more from um, from strongly worded to being a bit of a dick about it, quite yeah. frankly. But yeah. I mean, he makes before before he gets too dickish, he does again make the sort same sorts of points that she's been um, cherry picking her data and her sources as well. Um, uh, we, one thing we haven't talked of is that a lot of the sources she appeals to tend not to be sort of literary scholars specialising in the Elizabethan era? Well, I mean, let's go back to that point that we made in the introduction. So she makes a list of people who think that Shakespeare isn't Shakespeare. So she makes a list of authorship controversy members, and the list goes like this. Academics, actors, in brackets, Derek Jacobi and Mark Rolant, or perhaps the best known, writers, teachers, Lawyers, a, a few Supreme Court justices, in brackets, Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, John Paul Stevens. So she makes this list, and she gives us some names. It is interesting she gives us no academic names. Mm. What she gives us are actors and, let's say, at best, legal scholars, but no actual academics who are engaged in trying to uncover the real Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, so that Oliver Cam article um, points to some of the some of the stuff that went around Twitter at the time. He he refers to um Diana Henderson, uh, who of of MIT, um, who claims that she uh, that Elizabeth Winkler contacted her and um, wasn't didn't seem interested in hearing that a lot of that that uh, Henderson and a lot of her colleagues uh, find the I oh, sorry I should say she's um, MIT professor, co-ed of Shakespeare Studies, former SAA president. SAA? I don't know what SAA is, but anyway, the she, secret she's Shakespearean. She agency? is actually she is a Shakespearean scholar and claims that um, having spoken with Winkler, Winkler only seemed to want. Uh, her, her exact tweet was, um, uh, although I gave lengthy email replies. She doesn't acknowledge the fact that many of us who are most interested in women writers and know their dramatic as well as poetic works find this fanciful. She was seeking only to find what she wanted. So she, she so Winkley has basically been accused of a fair bit of cherry picking to come up with the story that she comes up with. And indeed, one of the things which is a really big factor of the original essay she wrote for The Atlantic is this claim that Shakespearean scholars are dogmatic, mm. that Shakespeare is Shakespeare. So... William Shakespeare, the author of the plays, the same person as William Shakespeare of Stratford on Avon. And so she presses this is dogmatism. And yet, unless there's really compelling evidence to say that well attested to author William Shakespeare, and I say well attested to by his contemporaries, isn't actually William Shakespeare the playwright. It's not really dogmatism, it's going, look, we're waiting for proof that you've got a really compelling theory, otherwise we're just going to stick with the orthodox histories that everybody at the time agreed was factual. Mm. So yeah, a couple of so these articles compared this this sort of um, Shakespeare authorship things to like climate change denial or possibly anti-vaxxers that it's not it's not it's not an even thing there's the weight of the, the vast weight of evidence is is on one side and it's not theirs um, and so you kind of need to produce fairly uh, um, extreme evidence if you actually want to yeah. make and it and the thing is actually proving your own authorship of a work other than having it attributed to you 
in some kind of legal setting or people acknowledging they saw you work on it is quite difficult. I, I actually, I do tweet about writing all, all the time, mm. so I'm a bad example. So let me use friend of the show Lee Basham as an example. Lee Basham is a philosopher at South Texas College who allegedly has written a whole bunch of articles on conspiracy theory. And I say allegedly because I haven't seen a diary where he's ever written down, today I started writing joining the conspiracy. And not just that, but he sent me a draft of one of his articles and the track changes was actually, uh, the references all from his partner. So I put it to you that Lee Basham may not have written any of his works, and instead is a cover name or pseudonym for his partner, and not just that. I've met someone and travelled with someone who claims to be Lee Basham, but how do I even know that that's real? Now, I'm not denying that Lee Basham, the professor at South Texas College, is also the author of a variety of different articles under the name Lee Basham, but actually it turns out it's really easy to cast doubt on authorship in situations where you are lacking a certain amount of evidence, whether or not that evidence actually exists. You mm. can cast doubt with absolute ease by going, yeah, until such time I see a diary by Lee Basham in Lee Basham's handwriting, which has a first draft version of joining the conspiracy, I have to assume that maybe someone else wrote that instead. Mm. It didn't, in the um, Radio New Zealand interview, um, Winkler d does get does get quite close to the the sort of the I'm just asking questions mode, where she sort of said, you know, she's saying that this you know, it deserves more investigation. And why Why haven't we looked into the idea that, that a woman could have been Shakespeare just because William of Shakespeare was a man and everybody said he oh, was right, Shakespeare? William of Shakespeare. No, William of Shakespeare, yes. That's, yes. that's exactly what I meant Good. entirely. Um, which is, yeah, it starts looking a little spurious. I mean, now we should say, that, like I said, that especially that Oliver Cam article does... does, does uh, swerve into fairly dickish territory towards the end where he goes from from um, say c comparing this sort of Shakespeare authorship thing to the likes of climate denial to going to talk about how uh, certain people who have in the past um, advocated for the idea that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare who then went on to become um, Nazis and and express violent anti-Muslim views as if to draw some sort of parallel between those two things which is, is, is frankly a dick move and unfortunately because um, Winkler has received a lot of quite undeserved vitriol from Twitter and around the traps um, that kind of has allowed her to play the victim card a little bit and sort of say, you know, look, it just proves proves they can't they can't answer, you know, they they they, they can't challenge the argument that I'm making if all they can do is make ad hominem attacks and when, call me a Nazi. Mm, yeah, when in fact there there are do actually appear to be fairly fairly reasoned arguments against her claim. But I think I think we should say, regardless of whether or not she actually is William Shakespeare, um, Amelia Bassano does seem to be a, a truly fascinating individual. Yeah, and I mean, and that's certainly... kind of the point that mm. Diana Henderson of M MIT makes, which is, and say we, academics who study Elizabethan era writing and plays are very much aware of this person and do think she needs to be celebrated a lot more. Mm. But we don't need to do that by suggesting she's Shakespeare. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I mean that's that's kind of weird. Especially since if Amelia Bassano wrote Taming of the Shrew, her feminist credentials are take a bit of a hit. Yeah, just mm. a I mean it's a little bit like what happened to in my in my view, my estimation of Josh Whedon after I watched Dollhouse. Buffy was taken to be a feminist masterpiece. Mm. Dollhouse objectified woman up the wizard. It did, yes. No, there, there was one episode in particular where um, Eliza Dushku seemed to spend pretty much the entire time getting punched in the face. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah. Anyway, so yes, Amelia Bassano, good. And, and a woman you should know more about, really. Um, the argument that Amelia Bassano actually wrote the works of Shakespeare, yeah. a lot more shaky. Yeah. The, the argument that Amelia Bassano contributed to the works of Shakespeare or influenced them in some Seems way, pro probably quite a good case. Yeah. But yeah, not, not, not taken that far. So I think that's all we have to say on the matter. Um, Unless you're a patron. Unless you're a patron, precisely. Because patrons get to hear about actual Nazis. So we'll talk about how... Two of our media organisations actually interviewed an Austrian Nazi about the March 15 events of this year. We'll then move on to talking about why the National Party doesn't appear to be backing away from that UN compact on migration conspiracy theory. And we'll give a bit of an update on good old Madeleine McCann, mm. of which there have been two updates in the last week. And then if we've got time, we might even talk a little about the course I'm about to start teaching at the University of Waikato, which is going to feature a bit of discussion of conspiracy theory. Indeed. Um, but if you're not a patron, you'll miss out on all of that. But that's okay, because you just got to listen to a whole episode of this. For which, which we are grateful for your li listenership. But if you want to sling us mm. a dollar a month, you'll get access to those patron episodes as well. Right. So uh, to our beloved patrons, we'll see you shortly. To everybody else, we'll probably see you in about a week. Toodle Goodbye. been listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy starring josh addison and dr mrx dented which is written research recorded and produced by josh and m you can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its podbean or patreon campaigns and if you need to get in contact with either josh or m you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their twitter accounts monkey fluids and conspiracism December was a night.